0: What were we doing? (laughs) The next time someone tells you that the 80s are coming back, that should be required viewing for anybody go, hey the 80s are coming back. You'd be like, watch the first two minutes of this video. They are not coming back. They'll never be back. (laughs) That feathered hair. Um So this this year during the Christmas season we're going through, we're taking songs that you're gonna hear on the radio, songs you're going to hear while doing your shopping, songs that you cannot avoid. And we're hijacking those songs, and and we're kind of using them to go, what is this actually asking us about the real reason for the season? How do we we hear that song? And next time you hear that when you're feverishly trying to get something through uh, the Walmart shopping area, and you got your last-minute gifts, and you're kind of just trying to rush through, and you hear this song come on, I want you to think of something else. I want you to go, ah, gosh, every time I hear this song, I can't help but think of this now because of that dumb series at church. That's our goal, okay? And so... I hear Last Christmas, and it's just sort of whiny, you know? It's a whiny song, and if you listen to what he's saying, the guy says he, he gave his heart away, and then the very next day, like the sermon of that guy is not great, he gives his heart away, and the very next day, the woman he gives his heart to gives it away to somebody else. So I don't know if you ever thought of it this way. Last Christmas is just... Somebody lamenting that the gift they gave someone, they saw the next day at a white elephant gift exchange. That's all it is. He gave something to her. The very next day, she's like, I'll repackage this. I don't want it. She adds a bottle of wine or like Caddyshack board game to it or something. She's like, just get this out from my... And now he's all upset about it because he gave her a bad gift. Um, That's not what you're going to remember. Where we're going today is there's clearly some unreconciled relationship between... uh, the protagonist in the story and this woman who gave his heart away. And so it seems like uh, forgiveness might allow this chap to move on. And that's kind of where we're going today. When we think about last Christmas and the traumas we carry and the relational hurts we have and the unreconciled things that, you know, Christmas brings all of it back in for a season. It brings all your family, all your old friendships. It brings all these memories. It kind of carries with it this, this kind of train of memories and, and whether it's family drama or relationship awkwardness or even gift anxiety or disappointment, um, the season brings with it a, a chaos, and, and every last Christmas kind of comes with it. And so what we're aiming for today in a season of chaos and, and unreconciled kind of worry is peace. What we want is peace. And so peace is on offer today. The, the offer of the day is peace, but it's peace that only forgiveness can bring. And so what we're going to do today is lean on some concepts and quotes. There's a new book out by Tim Keller. I'll put it on the screen. You can look at it. I am borrowing multiple quotes. You'll see the multiple quotes are going to come out of this book. Um, if you want to buy this book, you can buy this book. If you want to read it with me next year, I think I might do a book reading club just about this because the content is so important because it's something so difficult and increasingly in our society, something really distant. But we're going to be talking about forgiveness. So I'm going to lean heavily on this. So I'm giving credit there. And what we're going to see as we look at the scripture Is There's two paths to peace, and Christmas is the season of peace. It's the prince of peace is coming, and there's two paths. The first path is the world has its ways for you to gain peace, and the second path is God has a way for you to gain peace. And so to get there, we're going to go back a little bit to 735 BC. We have a map to put on the screen to give you a little rooting as to where we're going. 735 BC is the time of the writing of the prophet Isaiah, so we're going to read from the book of Isaiah, but this is what the world looked like around Israel. At the time of the writing, Israel is divided into a northern and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. You'll also notice that there's uh, various kingdoms all around. And then what's happening in the moment is the Assyrian empire from the far north is sort of taking over, okay? So, and then Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Syria, which is here the kingdom of Aram, where we get the word Aramaic, you know, when it says Jesus spoke Aramaic, That's coming from that area, Aram, but that's modern Syria. So those two kingdoms, Aram and Israel, are pressuring Judah down at the bottom in the yellow to join them in a coalition to stop the Assyrian empire from coming down and destroying them all. They're saying, we need your help. And Judah down at the bottom is kind of like, we're not so sure. King Ahaz there is like, "Ah, I'm not so sure I want to join in a coalition with you. I'm not sure I want to oppose the Assyrians because then they'll know that we oppose them and they're going to take us over anyway. And so there's a lot of like, indecision, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of just kind of general, ugh, what are we supposed to do? And this is kind of where we pick up because basically Judah is in a dark place. Judah is in a land of peacelessness, but they're in this darkness where they don't have a whole lot of good options. There's a hopelessness as you read through where they are. Their kingdom's at odds. And so as we consider them, and we're going to read Isaiah 8 and 9, we're going to get into that, but as we consider that, we have to think of our own lives that way too. That we're often living relationally at odds with others. We're often living in a place where we have a we have a manufactured peace sometimes, but but it's not really peace. You know when there's an active war, and sometimes you hear about the Christmas stories where everybody lays down their arms for a day and they sing Silent Night together, and then the next day they go back to killing each other. And we kind of have that in our. We admit it or not. Like well, we don't really get along, but we we put on a brave face for Christmas, or we do fine around the holidays, or we just kind of get on with it. We all have those relationships. It's this kind of like uneasy detente where everybody goes, just for the season, let's just be okay. Everybody be civil. Don't talk about those 12 things that we disagree on, and we'll be okay. The problem is when we have those uneasy ceasefires in our life, when we have that kingdom of Judah issue where we're kind of like, there aren't good options. I feel kind of hopeless and no matter who I side with, it doesn't really work out for me here. When we have those, what we have in our lives is a real foundation of trouble. We have a foundation that lacks reconciliation and then all the other troubles in life begin to magnify as a result. When you're on a shaky foundation, everything that goes wrong gets worse. When you have a strong foundation, a minor problem is a minor problem. When you have a weak foundation, a minor problem could be a major issue. And so, when the diagnosis comes in and you have a shaky foundation, it gets greater than it even than it is. When, you, when your finances are jacked up all around Christmas time because you spent too much money to try to please people that you didn't even really like, it feels worse because you're on a shaky foundation. When you are lonely, because this is the season when people are desperately lonely, when loneliness is at its greatest, when grief is unrelenting and you already have a shaky foundation, you already carry an unreconciled heart, it gets worse. Everyone's been in a place like this where you're at odds, you grit your teeth, you just get through it, but it kind of feels at times, if we're honest, in certain relationships or maybe in the whole season that there's a dark cloud in certain spaces. So Isaiah prophesied about Judah's place. And Isaiah paints two paths through the darkness. I already said what they are. One is the world's path and the other is God's path. But the first, let's go through the first path to peace, which is Isaiah chapter 8. And this, Isaiah 9 is going to sound familiar. This one, not so much. Isaiah 8, Starting in verse 19, the prophet says this When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and only see distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is, he's speaking to the people of the kingdom of Judah. The people of the kingdom of Judah are kind of panicked, kind of don't know what to do, feeling hopeless, rocking a hard place. And some would say, go talk to the psychics, go talk to the spiritists, go talk to the mediums, go get somebody who can call on the dead. And let's see if we can get some wisdom there. And Isaiah is saying, there are really bad places to go find wisdom. And that's them. And if you go to those places, if you choose those places as your sources of wisdom, if you go to the world and the world's ways, if you go to the spiritist and the psychic, if you go to retail therapy, if you go to these places to try to create peace, he says there's no peace there. It's actually worse. And by the time you figure out it's worse, you're going to curse God as if it was his fault, but it wasn't. And so then the people of God will just wander in utter darkness because they went to the wrong source. For modern people, this is self-help books and blogs, and you're in a dark place, and people will really lovingly, with good intentions, suggest a podcast you should listen to or a video on YouTube. They'll tell you the credibility of the person on the YouTube video. She's a doctor. You could trust her. I mean, we we shouldn't talk about COVID ever again because people are still a little triggered. But I mean how many videos did you get from people on every side of everything? And it was always like, but they're a doctor, so you should listen. And you're like, there's a lot of doctors with different opinions, but that was like, the, uh, they're a doctor. And people will just keep, but this is, you're in a tough space. I know people who've been in, in deep grief, and they've got a stack of books this high. Just 15, 20, everybody they know had a, bu- a grief book to give them. And the smartest people I've ever met said, I didn't read a single one of those books when I was grieving. I grieved. Maybe I'll get to them later, but I Knowing what grief is about isn't going to help me grieve. And it's this really interesting thing that we do is we, we kind of, we're Western, we want more information about the thing we're going through, but that's not actually going through the thing we're going through. So who can I find to give me more information about it? And so then when we are not in the middle of it, we try to give that to other people. Why don't you just have more information about the thing you're going through? And Isaiah is saying that seeking solutions in darkness, seeking solutions other than God's word, other than God's light, seeking solutions in darkness doesn't bring light. Or perhaps in our world as we think about it this way, consuming emptiness doesn't fill you. And it doesn't mean that there's not wisdom in a great podcast, book, YouTube video, whatever. It doesn't mean that there isn't something to learn or some way to grow. I'm not saying throw all of that out. I'm saying the primary source of our desire to find reconciliation and peace in our current scenario cannot be in something less than the bringer of that peace. Keller says it this way, our first Keller quote of the day. Keller says this way, The secular framework has nothing to give the wounded conscience to heal it. It has nothing to say to the self who feels it is unworthy of love and forgiveness. Anyone who has seen the depths of their sin... And what they are capable of will never be mollified by the bromide of be nice to yourself. You deserve it. There's a lot of words to say. There's something that the world offers people in deep pain. There's something that the world offers to people who are dealing with the consequence and, and fall out of sin. And it often is, is something along the lines of be nice to yourself. Self-help, retail therapy, a spa day, some empty positive self-talk again, none of those things in and of themselves are in any way bad. But if that's supposed to be the solution to the problem of sin in our lives, the problem of brokenness that comes from sin in our lives, it's not going to match up. This is why pediatricians pediatricians always have lollipops in the office. Isn't this different? You ever think, why do pediatricians always have lollipops? Because they're like for the health of the child, and they just have these little sugar sticks everywhere. Every pediatrician I've ever been to has them. Why? Because the child gets a shot, And they bring them a lollipop, and the kid goes from crying to really excited, sucking on the lollipop. Or the kid has a fever, and they bring in the ice pop, the just stick of icy sugar, and like, hold on to this for a minute. And it distracts the kid while they're in the office. The parent gets to deal with them later. But it distracts the kid while they're in the office long enough that they can get through what they need to get through, whether it's shots or anything else but the lollipop doesn't heal anything. It doesn't fix anything. It's a great distraction. It's a great short-term solution that'll get you through the next five minutes, but it won't actually heal the thing the kid is going through. That requires a different level of treatment. And this is like you and I walk through the world, and sometimes we're willing to accept the world's lollipops in in our moments of distress because it just distracts us from the thing we're dealing with. And we feel better long enough that we just say, well, I don't know. I'll deal with it later. But what we need is a true healing. What we need is the real treatment. And if we're satisfied with the little lollipops of the world, we end up with greater and greater and greater foundational issues that have never been addressed. I have a newsletter. Uh, a couple hundred people subscribe. I don't know why they do, to be perfectly honest. But one of the first posts I wrote this last year was about Pop Tarts. Um, now you know why. I don't know why people subscribe. Basically, the whole point of this—it was tongue-in-cheek—but the whole point of this uh, post about pop tarts was I was excoriating people for eating pop tarts without toasting them. And we can get into this if you want to. I got a lot of words on this. But stop doing that, okay? They were—they were designed. They're, okay, just—I got. I'm getting worked up right now thinking about pop tarts that untoasted. Here's what you need to know. We we posted about pop tarts. People talked about pop tarts. Had a lot of conversations about pop tarts in those days. And I had one great uh, church member who is a holistic nutritionist, like knows her stuff. And she sent me this great article about Pop-Tarts, a lot of information about Pop-Tarts. And what she called them, which is something I'd never heard before, was anti-nutrient food. (laughs) I was like, that's not a thing. I've never heard of that. So I got looking more into it. It's called anti-nutrient. She goes, no, it's in this category that that people in this field would call anti-nutrients, which is to say there's so much bad about a Pop-Tart that any caloric or other benefit you might get from it is outweighed by all of the bad you get from it. And so you'd be better off eating the box they come in than eating the Pop-Tarts themselves. <laughs> Her point was, well-received, I haven't had one since. Her point was, when you put junk in your body, it kind of junks out your body, right? And you, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. We've always heard this, garbage in, garbage out. This is a silly way of saying that this is what Isaiah is saying to the people of the kingdom of Judah. Isaiah is saying, if you guys go for these silly, worthless things, what you're going to get out of it is silly, worthless things. Oh, we'll see. We may not make it. Anti-nutrient foods. So Isaiah is saying, just because it's offered doesn't mean it's good for you. Mediums, spiritists, psychics, just because it's offered doesn't mean it's good for you. So what's the solution? Isaiah says there is a second path to peace. So Isaiah chapter 9, we'll go there. Scripture says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress, In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning fuel for the fire. This might sound familiar. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So here Isaiah offers a vision of hope. It says there's a light dawning in the darkness, that they're threatened with war from every angle. The kingdom of Judah is threatened with war and devastation and captivity from every angle. And Isaiah's solution is not a military conquest. It's a a child. It's a new kind of king. It's a prince of peace. So peace for God's people, then and now, comes in the form of a person. Anything less will not satisfy. Peace for God's people comes in the form of a person. Our war is against sin, not enemy states, but, but you and I, we're pressed in from every angle. There are, there are powers and principalities coming against us. There are, there are re- relationships and unreconciled spaces where we're warring. Sin leads to our destruction. It's what leads to our brokenness. And Isaiah 9 says to look for a peace that can only come in a person. And you're introduced to him as we get out of the Old Testament into the New. Who is this person? Like, we know Jesus. We know what's coming. But then look how the New Testament starts. The first words are your New Testament, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There there is a light, there is a hope. Continue reading in in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we've gone, if you'll go with me, from 735 BC to 85 AD. And the word became flesh, and it made his dwelling among us. And the one and only Son has come. But notice what he says. He says he's come full of grace and truth. Jesus entered into a culture of false ideas. And Jesus has come with grace and truth. A culture full of false ideas, that sounds familiar. Jesus came to a culture of two different main ideas. There was the Stoics that said life was sort of impossible. It's impossible to figure it out, and so what we will do is we're going to learn a lot and be kind. That's what the Stoics did. You can call them the do-gooders. Some of you know a little bit about that. Epicureans, the other side, said life is kind of impossible to figure out, so let's just do this. Let's just have fun. We would call these pleasure seekers. These are the two main modes offered to people of the day. Either do good and hope that it's enough, or seek pleasure and just soak up the world while you can. When you look at the world around you, it's the same today. There's religion. Do good and hope it's enough. And there's secular world. Who knows, so just have some fun. And somewhere in the middle, Jesus says there's a third way. Isaiah 8 says it doesn't bring light, it doesn't bring healing, it doesn't bring peace. But the word shows up, the word, the capital W word, shows up full of truth and grace, grace, unearned favor, mercy and forgiveness that Jesus came to bring true peace. We would say, by dying, he destroyed our death. By rising, he restored our life. And he brought mercy and forgiveness for all. Jesus spells out the path of peace for all of us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus comes to forgive us and restore our peace with the God who is in heaven. He also pro- prescribes something for the peace of us on earth between us, brothers and sisters. He says, Forgive. Maybe this is what you need to hear today. There's peace on offer today, but it requires our forgiveness. It requires us to look at the world around us and figure out where forgiveness is necessary. <clears throat> if you read the New Testament over and over, you see Jesus saying, forgive. Peter famously asked how often he needs to forgive. Jesus' response to that was, Peter goes like seven times, and he goes maybe 70 times, like basically as many times as necessary, 70 times seven. Jesus says, never stop forgiving. The disciples then say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus says, well, pray like this, and he starts the Lord's Prayer in which he says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So in the the main thing, when he says, teach us how to pray, Jesus' main thing includes forgiveness of others. And remember, this is Jesus talking here right after he teaches them how to pray in, in Matthew 6:14 and 15. He says this, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. It's heavy. It's almost like a promise that if we live unreconciled, we'll stay unreconciled. In Luke 6, Jesus also says the measure that you give, judgment, charity, forgiveness, it will be given to you. The measure that you give, it will be given to you. The measure you pour out, it will be poured out upon you. If you forgive richly, God will forgive you richly. If you give generously, God will be generous in the way he gives to you. And it's not karma. This is not a one-for-one situation. This is God saying if you are a person of reconciliation, reconciliation comes upon you. But the the challenge here is unforgiveness becomes the prison that we choose to inhabit when we choose not to forgive, when we choose to live unreconciled, when we choose to put our head down and just make it through another season. We hold our anger. We store up our wrath. We actually want the debts that we keep for others. At least we have something over them. They hurt me, but I have this debt. I got this thing. I can hold it over them. Maybe your version of, of the scripture in the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Same idea. The idea is that when we have been sinned against, when we are unreconciled with somebody for something they did, we get to hold that over them. They're indebted to us. And we refuse to allow it to be made right. And this is a real struggle in our modern culture because our modern culture says, yeah, they they are. They earned it. Keller says this, our next Keller quote. He says, American culture, which pits self-fulfillment against self-sacrifice, will produce revenge or withdrawal as a response to any mistreatment. In such a culture, forgiveness is seen as self hating, and revenge and anger are considered authentic. They are authentic, but they're not authentically going to heal you. In our modern culture, forgiveness is seen as self hating. In postmodern life, forgiveness makes no sense. Why? Next quote Forgiveness, Keller says is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving, rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. Nothing in our culture says that the one that is sinned against should take on a greater burden, and absorb the pain, and forgive. There's nothing in our culture that would suggest that. We live in a cancel culture that says, you did something wrong, you're done. Now we have something over you, and you're out. And this is saying, forgiveness says, I will bear the cost of that, I'll figure out how to make it right for you. I will actually take on the debt and I will forgive it to you. Let them off the hook. That's what people hear. They hear, well, you want me to just forgive them. My sister, she did this years ago. My brother, my uncle, my cousin, my, my father, you don't understand the way this works in my family. You don't understand what my boss did last year. You don't understand. You just want me to let them off the hook? Like, like, suffer, they should suffer. I suffered. Shouldn't they suffer? They don't deserve the freedom of being forgiven. After what they did to me, people will tell me that they don't actually deserve, after what they did to me, why do I need to give them peace? They don't deserve the peace that would come from being forgiven. And my really difficult response to that is always, Neither did you. You did not deserve the freedom of the forgiveness that you found in Jesus Christ. We did not deserve the peace and freedom of forgiveness we found in Jesus Christ. Jesus found you in the wreckage of sin and season. Like Judah, each of us has been in a hopeless place. No path to salvation in yourself. Like Isaiah 8, there's no path to salvation in your own works and and learning some more and and going to see a spiritist. There's no path there. If you're like me, you tried every remedy the world offered. You tried everything. We read Ecclesiastes together. We tried all of it. We tried knowledge and we tried pleasure and we tried work and we tried people and we tried all the things and none of it brought us closer. No amount of pleasure-seeking or do-gooding fixes the problem. But Isaiah 9 comes to the rescue, right? So then what's the solution to your problems and mine? What's the solution to a heart broken in sin? It's Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. To a people walking in darkness, new light is dawn. Jesus took on the suffering we deserve. Jesus absorbed the cost, bore the pain, and the shame. Because forgiveness is voluntary suffering. What did Jesus come to do for us? To voluntarily suffer. That rather than retaliating for our sins against him, he chose to bear the cost, absorb the pain. Our deepest longing for peace with our creator, Jesus said, I'm literally willing to lay my life down for you and die that you might find life. So in this season... You can drown out the unreconciled space in your heart with a drink or two. You can get through that next party. You can buy temporary peace with gifts or distractions. But if you want true peace in every aspect of your life, in every area of your existence, if you want true peace, first and foremost, realign your life with Jesus. There is no path otherwise. And the world will tell you there's all these others and there's all these options And the scripture is very plain. There are no other options. There are no other paths to peace. That peace comes only through the person of Jesus. That we might believe in him, that we might trust in him, that we might follow him, and in him alone we find peace. So first and foremost, if you want peace, it's in Jesus. Second, if you want peace, Amongst brothers and sisters, amongst the people you sit with in church, amongst your neighbors and your friends and your co you want if you want relational peace, if you want day-to-day peace. Romans twelve eighteen says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peace. Live at peace. Which might mean for you today, and this might be hard to hear, it might mean for you today that just like Jesus brought peace to you, it is upon you to bring peace to others. It is upon you who has been wounded or you who has been victimized or you who has been hurt or you who has been inflicted. The Bible says as far as it depends on you, take the next step to reconciliation. Learn what it means to absorb the pain and forgive. Open your hands to letting go of the retaliation that you have earned for sure. And instead, release it. And then you feel the peace of letting go, and you don't live in that anger prison of going, but I got a debt, I got a debt, I got him on this one. You release that pain, and you walk out of that prison. But more than that, you allow someone else to find their own way. The question for people here is usually, can I forgive someone if I don't feel like it? Yes. Can I forgive someone if they don't deserve it? Yes. But can I forgive someone if I don't, re- I don't really feel it yet? Do I need to wait to feel it until I forgive them? Can I say it even if I don't feel it? Can I let them out of the prison of the deadness of the victimization of our lives? Can I do that even if I don't feel that? We'll go to Keller one more time. It says, forgiveness is granted before it is felt. Not felt before it is granted. Forgiveness is a promise not to exact the price of sin from the person who hurt you. If you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. And he says you'll be in an anger prison. The great challenge of forgiveness is it's it's given before it's felt. And after it's given, then it starts to feel. But you have to give it before you feel it. And if you wait, to his point, What you do is you build, Mandela said famously, you build a prison of resentment against a person, but it's a prison with the gate open and you can walk out anytime, but you live in the prison of resentment instead of the prison of reconciliation, or in the the freedom of reconciliation. And so as the season goes on this year, as you look around the world and you go, where do I lack peace? The question for you today is to ask, where do I lack peace? With whom do I lack peace? And maybe it's a letter, and maybe it's a phone call, and maybe it's a face-to-face. I don't know what it is for you. If you lack peace in general, then you have work to do with God. That Jesus, I've lost sight of you. Jesus, I've lost touch with you. Jesus, I'm not following you. And so the lack of peace in my life is related to the lack of, my, of your lordship in my life. So I need to get back in touch and in step with you, Jesus. That's one. But two, if you, if you ask the question, where do I lack peace, and there's a clear answer for you, then my challenge today, and I want to give it as gently as I can, because this is hard stuff. My challenge is that you might take the next step to absorb the pain, to bear the cost, and to, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Let's pray. Jesus, we are overwhelmed by what you uh, did for us, <clears throat> by what you've done for us and, and how you relate to us, God, that you, that you saw fit in our worst moments. You saw fit in our deepest pit of sin, not only to come and be with us and know us, but then saw fit to give your life for us, to bear the cost, absorb the pain. Fathers, we consider this season and the coming of the Prince of Peace, the light that comes into a dark world. God, my prayer is that each heart here would survey that personal darkness, that place that kind of lives in the shadows, that, Father, each person in this room would be able to walk out today first at peace with you. Father, we want to be at peace with you with your your work on the cross. Your resurrection allows us that opportunity. We want to be at peace with you. Find us following you. But then more than that, uh, or maybe in addition to that, God, we want to be at peace with the world around us. We want to live as peacemakers and those who, like you, are unafraid to bear the cost for others. So, Father, as we walk into a world that at times can feel pretty dangerous, hopeless, relationships that can feel challenging, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to, like you, Take the first step of peace, to be the forgiver. And as we do that, Lord, would you be with us in those moments? Would you be with us encouraged? Would you be with us that we might feel your gladness as we turn brokenness into wholeness in the little ways that we can? Thank you, Father, for your presence with us today. We lift these things up. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.